welcome to the Empowered Podcast. I'm your host, Robin Tudor, Certified Lifestyle Medicine Practitioner. My aim is to help everyday people understand science, not the science, and to use that understanding to make better choices for their health and well-being. Each episode, I'll be bringing my latest Substack post to you in audio form. For the full visual experience, including graphs, charts, images, and videos, view the accompanying post in my Empowered Substack. And now, let's dive in. Episode 21, The Great Molnupiravir Swindle. Australia's drug regulator approved Merck's antiviral drug on the basis of some very shaky studies. As of the date of this podcast episode, Australia's drug regulator, the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, has granted provisional approval to eight products for the treatment of COVID-19. They are AstraZeneca's Evershield, Merck's Legevrio, which is Molnupiravir, Pfizer's Paxlovid, Celtrion's Red Corona, Roche's Actemra and Ronoprieve, GlaxoSmithKline's Zavudi, and Gilead's Vecluri, which is Remdesivir. You'll no doubt be shocked to learn that the TGA-approved drugs are all A, investigational, in the sense that they have not been approved to treat any previous disease and are only in the very early stage of testing for safety and efficacy for COVID-19, and B, are very costly compared to the inexpensive drugs, nutraceuticals and dietary and lifestyle changes that have a long history of safe use and have been shown to be more effective than many of their novel competitors. These older, well-tested drugs include those that TGA recommends against using and has made unavailable for prescription for prevention or treatment of COVID-19, that is hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And you can take a look at a chart comparing the costs of these various treatments in the post accompanying this podcast episode. The Pfizer product Paxlovid costs $700 per course. The Roche product Ronaviv costs $2,100 per course. The AstraZeneca product, Evershield, costs $855 per course. The Merck product, Legevrio or Molnupiravir, costs $700 per course. The GlaxoSmithKline product, Zavudi, costs $2,100 per course. And Gilead's Vecluri or Remdesivir costs $3,120 per course. Let's zero in on Molnupiravir. Molnupiravir was first described in 2003. Its discoverers found that it inhibited the growth of bovine viral diarrhea virus and hepatitis C virus and proposed that it may be a promising treatment for hepatitis C. It works by creating errors in the virus's genetic code, known as mutagenesis. Each time the virus replicates in the presence of Molnupiravir, more and more errors accumulate, eventually building up to an error catastrophe that stops the virus from functioning. The problem is, mutagenic drugs may also cause mutations in the RNA of the cells of the individuals taking them. As a BMJ report on Molnupiravir explains, quote, this happened with the hepatitis C antiviral candidate BMS 986094, for which clinical trials were abandoned quickly after a death and hospital admissions arising from heart and liver toxicity, end of quote. That quote was from an article called COVID-19, What is the Evidence for the Antiviral Molnupiravir? Hence, despite having been discovered almost 20 years ago, the drug had never been approved to treat any illness. It was due to enter clinical trials as an influenza drug, but then COVID-19 stepped onto the scene and Molnupiravir's discoverers envisaged a new application for their red-headed stepchild. Another quote from that BMJ article, 
During the pandemic, Emory University struck a deal with the biotechnology company Ridgeback Biotherapeutics to test it as a treatment for COVID-19. Ridgeback then partnered up with the pharmaceutical giant Merck in May 2020 for clinical trials and scale-up, end of quote. TGA granted provisional determination for molnupiravir to Merck Sharp and Dome in August 2021, essentially inviting them to apply for provisional registration of the drug. Provisional registration was granted on the 18th of January 2022 on the basis of one phase one or safety and tolerability study, one phase two or safety tolerability and efficacy study, and two phase three or large randomized controlled trial studies. Let's look at each of the phase two and three studies in turn. The phase two study, which was called study 006 in the Australian Public Assessment or OSPAR report for Molnupiravir, randomised 202 participants to receive either one of three dosage regimes of Molnupiravir, that is 200, 400 or 800 milligrams twice daily, or placebo. 195 participants completed the study, that is they received both doses of either the drug or the placebo. The study's endpoint, that is the outcome that the study was designed to investigate, was elimination of SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA in patients with COVID-19, which was determined using reverse transcriptase polymerase chain reaction, RT-PCR, of nasopharyngeal swabs. Infectivity assays were also conducted to determine whether the virus recovered from the swabs was capable of being transmitted to someone else, and next-generation sequencing was carried out to check for mutations caused by the drug. The results did not exactly inspire confidence in the drug. There was no difference in the time taken to clear the virus between participants who received molnupiravir and those who got the placebo, 15 days in each case, and there was no dose response, that is the drug didn't work better at higher doses than at lower doses, as one would expect if it was truly effective. However, the unnamed TGA official tasked with making the decision on whether to approve the drug known as the delegate, did his or her best to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, taking Merck's word for it that the drug really did work if only you held the results up in the correct light and squinted. Quote, the sponsor, that is Merck, has stated that the results show a reduction in viral detection in the molnupiravir 800mg group. Based on the overall trend of the data, the delegate suggested that there was a reduction in viral count in each group. The results were statically, that's actually how it appears in the document, it's obviously meant to be statistically, significant only at day 5 and 7 for the 800 milligram group. There was no dose response. The median time to response was similar for the molnupiravir and placebo groups, end of quote. And that quote was from the OSPAR report for molnupiravir. In any case, the endpoint was of questionable significance because less than half of those who tested positive on a PCR test before starting to take either molnupiravir or placebo were shedding virus that was capable of infecting someone else. And the vast majority of participants who continued to test positive throughout the study weren't shedding infectious virus either. Quote, analysis of the agreement between SARS-CoV-2 RNA and infectivity results indicated a very low level of agreement between the two assays. Infectivity results were negative for every sample that had a negative SARS-CoV-2 RNA result. Infectivity results were positive for 45.1% of samples that had a positive SARS-CoV-2 RNA result at baseline, and for 15.6% of all samples that had a positive SARS-CoV-2 RNA result through day 7 of the study. This would suggest that the virus was not active in many of the samples where the RNA was detected." End of quote. Let's look now at the phase three studies, starting with study 001. 
The first Phase 3 study considered by TGA, MK4482001, designated Study 001 in the OSPAR report, has not been published in a peer-reviewed journal, so TGA relied solely on data supplied by Merck in its assessment. Study 001 enrolled 304 participants hospitalised with COVID-19, of whom 293 received at least one dose of either molnupiravir in three different dosage schedules, or placebo. Treatment duration was five days. And quite simply, the drug didn't work. Quote, there was no significant treatment effect from intervention with molnupiravir, end of quote. Interestingly, although 86.5% of participants were rated as having moderate or severe COVID-19 and the prevalence of risk factors for serious outcomes, that is age over 60, obesity and diabetes, was also high, the majority got better, and quite quickly too, regardless of treatment. Rate. Quote, the rate of sustained recovery was high overall and similar for participants in the molnupiravir groups compared with those in the placebo group. The median time to sustained recovery was nine days, and the recovery rate ranged from 81.5% to 85.2% in each intervention group at day 29. Besides time to recovery, the study assessed how long it took for participants to test negative on PCR for SARS-CoV-2. 12.5% of these supposed COVID-19 patients didn't even test positive for the virus at baseline anyway, and there was no difference in how long it took to clear the virus in those who got the drug versus those randomised to placebo, no matter how the investigators tried to slice and dice the data. Quote, 87.5% had detectable SARS-CoV-2 RNA in nasopharyngeal sample at baseline. A similar decrease from baseline in SARS-CoV-2 RNA mean teeter was observed in all groups at all time points in nasopharyngeal and oropharyngeal samples assessed by quantitative polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. The slope and magnitude of viral load decay was similar across board and with no clear dose-response relationship across molnupiravir groups. No differences in response across molnupiravir doses and placebo for patients with high viral load greater than 106 copies per mil or lower at baseline RNA teeters. The post hoc analyses did not reveal a different result in terms of reduction of viral load over time among the intervention groups. End of quote. And you can see a graph depicting the change in viral load at different doses of molnupiravir or placebo in the post accompanying this podcast episode. There was a difference in two outcomes of interest. The first was the most serious of all outcomes, death. Quote, there were 17 deaths, 15 in the treatment groups and two in the placebo group. End of quote. There were just under three times as many participants in the treatment group as in the placebo group, 218 in the treatment group versus 75 in the placebo group. So the fact that more than seven times as many deaths occurred in participants who received molnupiravir as in placebo recipients is concerning, but not to the trial investigator who, quote, did not consider that any deaths were due to the study intervention, end of quote. No reason for this judgment call is given in the OSPAR report. It is truly extraordinary that a clinical trial in which a drug failed the most basic of all tests, whether those who took it were more likely to survive moderate to severe COVID-19, is considered by TGA to be persuasive evidence for approving that drug. The second outcome in which there was a significant difference between the drug and placebo was a number of participants who shared mutated versions of SARS-CoV-2. 
quote, a higher mutation rate was observed in post-baseline viral sequences from nasopharyngeal swabs in all molnupiravir intervention groups compared with placebo. Additionally, the proportion of participants with more than 3 per 10,000 post-baseline sequence mutations, threshold defined post-hoc, from nasopharyngeal swabs was higher in all monopiravir intervention groups compared with placebo, end of quote. In summary, study 001 found that participants who took monopiravir were more likely to die than those who took placebo, and those who recovered took just as long to do so as those who effectively got no treatment at all, all the while shedding more mutated versions of the virus from their noses. Does that sound like $700 per treatment course well spent to you? Study 002. The second phase 3 study considered by TGA was MK4482002, called Study 002 in the OSPAR report, the results of which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine as the MOVE-OUT trial on the 10th of February 2022, three days after the final version of the OSPAR report was published. Hence, the OSPAR report considers the data gathered only up until interim analysis 4, involving roughly half of the participants. Quote, in providing this advice, the ACM, that is the Advisory Committee on Medicine, acknowledged that top-line efficacy data from Part 2 of the move-out study in 1,433 randomised participants has been recently reported but has not yet been evaluated by the TGA. The ACM advised that these data should be provided to the TGA. End of quote. And that turns out to be extremely significant. The interim analysis data considered by TGA concluded that molnupiravir, taken at a dose of 800 mg every 12 hours for 5 days, starting within 5 days of symptom onset, reduced the relative risk of hospitalisation or death in patients with mild to moderate COVID-19 by almost half. 53 out of 377 participants, that is 14.1%, who received placebo were hospitalised or died, compared to 28 out of 385, or 7.3%, who took monopiravir, an absolute risk reduction of 6.8 percentage points. However, this interim analysis only included 775 participants, followed up until 29 days after commencing treatment. Findings in the all-randomised sample, which included 1,433 participants, were considerably less impressive. Quote, in the all-randomised modified intention-to-treat population, participants receiving molnupiravir had a lower risk of hospitalisation or death through day 29, 6.8%, 48 of 709 participants in the molnupiravir group, as compared with 9.7%, 68 out of 699 participants in the placebo group for a difference of three percentage points between molnupiravir and placebo, end of quote. And that quote is from the New England Journal of Medicine article, Molnupiravir for Oral Treatment of COVID-19 in Non-Hospitalized Patients. And when only hospitalizations and deaths that were solely attributable to COVID-19 were considered, molnupiravir's effectiveness started looking even dicier. Quote, a pre-specified supporting analysis specifically evaluating only COVID-19-related hospitalizations or deaths showed that 45 out of 709 participants, 6.3%, in the molnupiravir group and 64 out of 699, or 9.2%, in the placebo group had hospitalizations or deaths that were considered by the investigators to be COVID-19-related. That's a difference of 2.8 percentage points between molnupiravir and placebo, end of quote. 
Furthermore, the confidence intervals for most subgroups of patients, including males, people who began treatment within three days of symptom onset, people with both mild and moderate COVID-19, people who already had natural immunity to SARS-CoV-2, people aged over 60, people with diabetes or a serious heart condition, Native Americans and Blacks, includes the zero line, denoting substantial uncertainty that the drug had any therapeutic effect in these subgroups. And if that preceding statement doesn't make much sense, just take a look at the chart that's in the post accompanying this podcast episode. Considering that the trial was supposed to test the effectiveness of molnupiravir in people with, quote, laboratory-confirmed COVID-19, end of quote, the fact that only 77.6% of participants, quote, had quantifiable RNA confirmed in nasopharyngeal samples at baseline, unquote, is a head-scratcher. What were people who didn't test positive to SARS-CoV-2 doing in the trial in the first place? It's also puzzling that molnupiravir apparently reduced the risk of hospitalisation and death without substantially reducing the severity of symptoms. Quote, there was minimal impact on symptoms, end of quote. And that quote was from the OSPAR report for molnupiravir. If people who are assigned to the placebo group didn't have any worse symptoms of COVID-19 than those taking molnupiravir, why were so many more of them hospitalised? Who made the decision to hospitalise them? And on what basis, if it wasn't because they had more severe symptoms? Is it possible that, as has been alleged by Brooke Jackson with respect to the Pfizer vaccine trial, some participants were unblinded, meaning that trial doctors would have been able to identify which participants had received molnupiravir and which had received placebo, and therefore could have been biased to direct more placebo participants to be hospitalised, where they would receive more invasive treatments that could hasten their demise, such as mechanical ventilation. And why did the New England Journal of Medicine write-up of Study 002 neglect to mention the higher rate of shedding of mutated versions of SARS-CoV-2 that is acknowledged in the OSPAR report? Quote, Higher viral sequence mutation rates were observed at day 5 in nasopharyngeal samples obtained from participants treated with molnupiravir 200 mg, there were 7.9 mutations per 10,000 BP, molnupiravir at 400 mg, 6.7 mutations per 10,000, and molnupiravir 800 mg, 8.7 mutations per 10,000, compared with placebo with only 2 per 10,000. The highest RNA mutation rate was observed in the molnupiravir 800mg intervention group at day 5. End of quote. That quote was from the OSPAR report for molnupiravir. TGA consulted an unnamed independent expert to discuss the significance of this increased mutation rate. I don't feel particularly reassured by the answer that they received. Quote, the likelihood of mutations resulting in a more virulent strain of SARS-CoV-2 from treatment with molnupiravir over the long term has not been assessed. It is less likely, but unproven, that virus mutation induced by molnupiravir will increase virulence of SARS-CoV-2. End of quote. Surely it's important to gain more certainty about such matters before unleashing the 300,000 courses of this inadequately tested drug already ordered by the Australian government on an unsuspecting and underinformed public, especially when that taxpaying public will be footing the bill for the gap between the $700 cost of the drug and the $42.50 per script or $6.80 for concession card holders that patients will be charged now that the drug has been added to the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme or PBS. 
Just when you thought that Study 002 couldn't get any more suspicious, along comes an article published online ahead of print in March 2022 in the American Journal of Tropical and Medical Hygiene. It points out that the outcomes in participants in the remaining half of the sample, who were not included in the interim analysis discussed in the OSPAR report, were the reverse of those in the first half. That is, in the second batch of participants, the placebo appeared to be more effective than the drug in keeping people alive and out of hospital. And that wasn't the only problem they identified. In all, the authors identified six points that are directly relevant to the evaluation of clinical efficacy of molnupiravir. Quote, one, the authors and sponsors, that it's Merck, maintain that the interim analysis is the formal efficacy analysis, which is inconsistent with the protocol and primary statistical analysis plan. Two, communication between sponsors and the Data Safety and Monitoring Board was insufficient to avoid inappropriate interim recommendations. Three, the treatment effects reverse when examining only the post-interim data and are substantially attenuated when examining the full data. Four, the choice effect measure and statistical model for the primary analysis is incorrect. Five, the loss to follow-up analysis is unconventional. Conventional intention-to-treat analysis removes statistical significance. Six, other known molnupiravir trials were not presented in the primary study findings. End of quote. And that quote was from a paper entitled Making Statistical Sense of the Molnupiravir Move-Out Clinical Trial. If the TGA reviewers are as rigorous as they assure us, how did they miss these crucial flaws in study design? So many questions, so few answers. Here are a couple more questions. One, why did TGA include so few studies of molnupiravir in its OSPAR report, ignoring other published trials, such as one which found a 282% higher risk of death in people who took molnupiravir, or CTR1-2021-05033864, and CTR1-2021-08-035-4242, which have reported no significant efficacy, but have not yet been published? And two, why is TGA downplaying the very real risk that molnupiravir's mutagenic mechanism of action could cause cancer? The pharmaceutical company Pharmacet dropped development of NHC from which molnupiravir was developed because of mutagenicity, and Emory University chemist Raymond Shinazzi doubted that the small chemical change that turned NHC into molnupiravir could avoid this. Research has demonstrated mutagenic effects in mammal cells back in August 2021. And while Merck employees dismissed their concerns as baseless, the researchers disputed their critics' claims and doubled down on the potential danger posed by molnupiravir and the unfavorable cost-benefit ratio of the drug for most people who get COVID-19. Quote, this leads to the conclusion that treatment with molnupiravir will lead to mutations in host DNA in dividing cells. Until a better understanding of treatment with molnupiravir is achieved, we would argue that its use should be limited to people with cofactor risks for coronavirus disease 2019 who are likely to receive the greatest benefit while being exposed to the unknown long-term risks of exposure to this mutagen, end of quote. Another paper published in September 2021 noted that, quote, it has been suggested that exposure to molnupiravir can be mutagenic to host DNA during host DNA replication. Therefore, the potential off-target effects will require further investigation, end of quote. A review of antivirals that work through lethal mutagenesis, published in February 2022, called for long-term monitoring of the cancer risk of such drugs, 
quote, a registry of a cohort of people who received molnupiravir should be kept to longitudinally monitor the frequency of cancer and other potential outcomes so that the opportunity to understand the risk or lack thereof associated with the use of mutagenic ribonucleoside as an antiviral is not missed, end quote. Another concern raised was that people with weaker immune systems may provide the virus with an evolutionary advantage. Quote, However, for people who fail to clear the virus and maintain a persistent infection, whether treatment with molnupiravir will affect the course of viral evolution remains unknown. End of quote. Yet TGA simply ignored all these studies and accepted Merck's assurance that, quote, molnupiravir has low risk for genotoxicity and carcinogenicity. End of quote. The OSPAR report airily states that, quote, no carcinogenicity studies were submitted. This was considered acceptable based on the proposed intended clinical use of less than six months short treatment duration in humans, which is limited to five days, and low risk of genotoxicity in mammalian systems. Molnupiravir is unlikely to cause cancer from the proposed clinical use, end of quote. I don't know about you, but I don't consider that even a small risk of cancer is worth it for a drug that fails to deliver on any clinically meaningful outcomes. And aside from these concerns, there are serious issues around molnupiravir's reproductive toxicology. Molnupiravir is rated as pregnancy category D, that is drugs which have caused, are suspected to have caused, or may be expected to cause, an increased incidence of human fetal malformations or irreversible damage. These drugs may also have adverse pharmacological effects. Women of reproductive age are urged to use contraception or abstain from sex while taking molnupiravir and for four days afterward, while men must use contraception during treatment and for three months afterward. Huh, well that sounds reassuring. Molnupiravir has gained regulatory approval amidst criticisms of a lack of transparency and rigour in the approval process in the United Kingdom, United States, Japan and South Korea. The European Union, Canada and Switzerland still have applications under consideration. On the other hand, India has excluded molnupiravir from its COVID-19 treatment guidelines over toxicity concerns, and France has cancelled its order for 50,000 doses of molnupiravir, citing efficacy concerns. Alert readers may recall that Merck, the sponsor of molnupiravir, held the patent on ivermectin until 1996 and continues to market ivermectin under the brand name Stromectol. Merck issued a statement on the use of its Nobel Prize winning antiparasitic drug in February 2021, claiming that there was no evidence that the cheap, safe generic was effective against COVID-19. I'm sure there's no connection whatsoever between Merck's desire to sell a $700 per course patented drug rather than a $1 generic and TGA making it impossible for doctors to prescribe ivermectin for the prevention or treatment of COVID-19. In case you were wondering, TGA's rationale for severely restricting ivermectin prescription is that a. if ivermectin were made more available, it might dissuade people from taking a COVID-19 vaccine, b. social media posts are promoting inappropriate doses, which seems to me a pretty good reason to allow doctors to prescribe it rather than run the risk of people dosing themselves using veterinary products or drugs purchased from online overseas pharmacies, and c. that if too many people try to get ivermectin to treat COVID-19, those who need to take it to treat scabies or parasitic disease might face shortages, which could easily be addressed by scaling up production or importation. I'll leave you with a summary of the clinical trial data of studies on molnupiravir and ivermectin from c19early.com. I really do encourage you to take a look at the post accompanying this podcast episode to see these data in graphical form. 
So for molnupiravir for treatment of COVID-19, there have been nine studies from 108 scientists covering 4,235 patients in three countries. And these studies show statistically significant improvement for hospitalisation and viral clearance. There have been five studies from two countries that show statistically significant improvements in isolation, that is isolation of virus, and concerns have been raised that the mutagenic mechanism of action may cause dangerous variants or cause cancer. Turning to ivermectin for COVID-19, there have been 82 studies from 815 scientists covering 129,808 patients in 27 countries. And these studies show statistically significant improvement for mortality, ventilation, ICU, hospitalization, recovery cases and viral clearance. These studies have shown an 83% improvement for prophylaxis, 63% improvement for early treatment and 40% improvement for late treatment. There's been a 56% improvement in 33 randomised clinical trials and 53% lower mortality shown in 42 studies. So what would you take or recommend to a vulnerable family member if you were given the choice? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and on your socials and make sure you subscribe to my Empowered Substack so you never miss a post.